This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. Today, we're sharing a conversation with two founders, Carolyn Childers and Enrique Dubagras, on their founder journeys, how they're adapting to a challenging macro environment, and what they're most optimistic about for their futures. Carolyn Childers is the co-founder and CEO of Chief, a private women's network that's built to drive more women into positions of power. And Enrique Dubagras is the co-founder and co-CEO of Brex, an integrated corporate card and spend management solution. Carolyn and Enrique sat down with Kim Posnett, Global Head of Investment Banking Services, at our 11th Annual Builders and Innovators Summit, which brings together emerging and seasoned entrepreneurs across a diverse set of industries. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, guys. Thank you for doing this. First of all, congratulations to both of you on your successes. Let's start with the basics. Why don't you both tell us about what each of your businesses does and why your customers choose you? Carolyn, why don't we start with you? Sure. So Chief is building the most powerful network of women. And we're a membership-based model where women join and they get access to a suite of services. The primary thing that we do is what we call core. It is a peer group model. You meet on a monthly basis. There's an executive coach in the room. So you're truly working through the hardest professional and personal challenges. But outside of that, there's a whole suite of services You can tap into the entire network to crowdsource for resources. We have physical spaces, but really our whole mission is to unlock the potential of all of the women leaders in the world. Brex, we do corporate cards and spend management softwares that your teams actually love. And a very easy way to explain it is we do a corporate card and reimbursements that does your expenses for you. So instead of having to keep filling in all your expenses all the time and doing them, if you just use a Brex card, it's automatically done for you. So we focus on higher growth companies and have been doing this since 2017. Awesome. Guys, let's talk about your launch stories. Carolyn, you founded Chief to change the face of corporate leadership, which is no small feat to say the least. So how did you get started? Yeah, for me and my co-founder, Lindsay, the idea of Chief came from a very personal place. So we were getting more senior in our careers. We were spending all of our time managing teams and mentoring others and no longer actually had a place to go for ourselves and our leadership challenges. And so we were really inspired to build something for a senior executive. And it was also happening at a time where it was after the 2016 election, after the Me Too movement, and companies were really starting to approach the lack of representation in senior leadership in a really different way. And so this personal need for us coincided with what was happening in the world. And we thought, wouldn't it be great to build just the most powerful network of senior executive women? And really excited to be three years into that journey now. So give us a sense of the numbers today. What does representation of women look like at the top? Yeah, it's equal representation at the beginning of that corporate ladder. It's only about 25% of C-level positions that are held by women. And there's 5.5 million women in the U.S. alone who are VP level and above. So the idea that it is a lack of talent and lack of pipeline just isn't true. There's actually a ton of people who are right there. And that's why we wanted to start with senior executive women is there's so many people right there just getting them in true positions of leadership, true positions of influence. The ripple effect that could have was the place that we wanted to start. So Chief was one of the first women-led billion-dollar success stories during the pandemic. Why do you think the mission of Chief resonated with investors? What was so amazing for us was from day one that we launched, we had just a wait list of thousands. 
We thought this was a personal problem for Lindsay and I and realized how much it was really resonating with so many people. And I think it was that momentum and movement and growth of our membership that got investors very excited when you couple that with the sentiment of what people were experiencing as they were going through the chief experience. And we were a very in-person experience before the pandemic. We had to pivot over to virtual during... It was just in your New York headquarters. Yes, yes. So we still have an element that is in person, but we now have an experience that you never have to go into a physical space to get the value that Chief really gives. And that allowed us to think about the experience and the way that we scale and be able to get this mission out to more people across the whole U.S. faster. And that was a story that really resonated with investors. And we never really set out to be a billion dollar business, but we're excited because I think it shows that investment in women is a good investment. Awesome. Congratulations. Enrique, let me turn to you. You got an early start in building a fintech business in Brazil where you grew up. In fact, you started coding when you were 12 years old. So what drew you into fintech? Yeah, I would say that my coming into fintech was a little bit luck, a little bit, mostly luck, I would say. So both my co-founder and I had some experience. So he actually was hired by Brazil's largest payments company to be a engineer there when he was 14 years old. So that was his background in payments because he was working at that company. And I built an app, like a dating app, and I had to implement payment systems in Brazil. And it was a terrible experience. It was so hard to get started and to process payments. And when we met over Twitter, basically fighting text editors on Twitter, and we were like, oh my God, this is such a terrible experience. And he's like, oh, I know why it's a terrible experience. I was like, oh, maybe we can build something better. So we built this payments business in Brazil back starting in 2013, sold it in 2016. And then when we moved to the US, we actually wanted to get out of fintech. We were like, oh my God, fintech is so hard. All these regulators and banks, we want to do something in the bleeding edge of technology. So we actually tried to start a VR company before we started Brex. A few weeks in, we found out that VR is actually pretty hard. So we decided to go back to fintech. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So what was the opportunity that you saw in the market when you and your co-founder Pedro launched Brex? And that was in 2017, right? Yeah, correct. So when we launched Brex, what we realized is that there were all these startups in the US that had raised millions of dollars and they still couldn't get a corporate card. And we thought, how does that make any sense? You have $3 million in your bank account but you still can't get a corporate card with no personal guarantees. So that's the first thing that we solved. And then since then, we grew and did a lot more than that, but that's the initial pain point. So let's shift the conversation to megatrends and disruption, and you both have front seats to that. One of the megatrends that we've been discussing at Builders and Innovators is the role that technology plays in disrupting traditional ways of doing business. Carolyn, how is technology helping build a community of women leaders at Chief? Yeah, I was mentioning when we first started that we were this in-person experience and we are truly building a membership across the busiest women in the world. And the idea that you have to go across the city to get the benefit of a network is just it doesn't fit in a time-starved community. And so it was really important for us to just create access to answers of your biggest professional personal challenges at your fingertips. And it's been a huge investment for us to really build out that product and that technology that can really tap into this collective knowledge of an amazing vetted community. And it has just changed the experience so much for the chief membership. Enrique, how about you? Fintech's obviously been a disruptor in the financial services industry. Where are we in the evolution of fintech and what do you think comes next? And what do you see as the next big wave of innovation in fintech? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think that one of the biggest things that has been happening for a long time, but I think the pandemic accelerated is companies going a lot more distributed, right? So you can say in office or you can say remotely. I'm not even going to debate that. But it's very clear that talent is everywhere and you should be hiring people in a lot of different places. And I think that a lot of fintech has been local so far. Everything is there's this for the U.S., there's that for Canada, there's this for Brazil. And I think it's now time for global solutions, right? So companies that are not necessarily big multinationals that have the resources to have managed 20 different banks around the world, they can have one solution that works for them globally for their team of 10 or 10,000. I want to stay on this point of remote work, and it's still keeping with this theme of disruption and evolution, but the pandemic led to a huge disruption, to state the obvious, in workplace norms, including a rise in remote work and workplace flexibility. How is the conversation around workplace policies and dynamics in Chiefs Network evolved in this post-pandemic economy? I think we saw the great resignation was definitely skewed towards women in particular as we were going through the pandemic. The extra burdens of trying to hold the job and take care of your family at home, it definitely was having a greater burden for women. We're also seeing that as some of that is coming where child care services are coming back and schools are opening up. You still see women as being the predominant group that is saying going back into the office is just harder. There's so many benefits to being able to work from home. And I hope that companies, as they recognize that those dynamics are playing out, are really intentional about those policies if they also have the stated goal of really wanting representation in their leadership ranks. And for me, I think the most important thing that the pandemic has given is that the old ways of working, of needing to be in the office, we have proved that you can actually be very effective companies without needing people to be in office. But I think without that collective convening, it actually creates this like broader societal challenge of loneliness. And so it's something like Chief that allows people, you know, the corporate office is no longer your go-to place for that connection and that community. How else am I going to get that? How do I make sure that I still stay connected and don't end up in this place of loneliness? I want to hear, Enrique, your views on this because remote work and hybrid work models have become increasingly popular and especially amongst tech companies, including at Breck. So you guys have a remote first policy. How do you think about cultivating and maintaining your culture to pull on the thread that Carolyn was starting on when employees are remote? How do you maintain culture? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is I don't think that remote or in office is a one size fits all. I think that Every business has different characteristics and different cultures that drive them to success. And remote has its pros and cons, right, based on the business. So for our business specifically, right, so I don't want to say this is a rule for every business in every industry. The pros of being able to hire talent anywhere, especially engineering talent, which is highly competitive, outweighs a lot of the cons, Right. Like the ability to hire people in all these different places around the U.S. and the world is something that's extremely important for us, both in terms of hiring and availability of talent, but also in terms of cost as we get into a tougher environment and there's more expectations around profitability. It's a huge thing for us. That being said, when it comes to culture, I would say I separate culture into two. One is the quality of decision making. And I think that has actually improved since remote because a lot of the decision making is now in writing. And I think writing decision making, there's more data for new hires to see why decisions were made. And I think that's really good. 
The second one is around a sense of belonging. And I think we do a lot of offsites. Probably there's 70 offsites going on this month at Brex. And that's how we maintain the close relationships in person. We believe that three days of intense bonding every quarter is probably worth more, at least for our business, than five minutes or 10 minutes every day in the office. Let's shift to macro topic du jour. Companies are facing a lot of macro headwinds, ranging from inflation to interest rates, slowing economic growth, an increasingly difficult time raising capital, on and on. That abrupt shift in market conditions this year has forced a lot of companies, especially high-growth tech companies, to be more disciplined around profitability. So Enrique, how has that impacted Brex specifically, and how have you shifted your strategy in response, if at all? Absolutely. So I think for us, it's both a tailwind and a headwind. So in terms of the, if you just think about total spent in credit cards, which is the majority of our business model, it is a headwind. People are spending less. Like we see advertising is probably the largest category of spend of Brex, and that's gone down. On the other hand, the amount of new business that we're getting is increasing exponentially. Because like you said, every business is now thinking about costs. And I think last year, if you're an enterprise software and you weren't talking about how you help them expand revenue, you didn't get the light of day versus now helping them manage costs and do more with less is definitely something that matters to a lot of companies. How about you, Carolyn? Yeah, I think we have a similar headwind, tailwind. I think for us, the way our model works is it's an annual membership fee. It is largely paid for by the companies in the same way that a company would sponsor somebody to go to a conference or get them an executive coach. They will pay for a membership for chief. And what we've largely seen is as some companies are going through layoffs or really slowing down on hiring, the willingness for somebody to go and ask for that sponsorship has waned a little bit. And the irony is from the company perspective, what we have actually seen is, yes, they are slowing down hiring. They might have a hiring freeze. They might actually be letting people go, but they're recognizing that they actually need to invest in the talent that they have even more. And so that's the headwind that we are seeing. And one of the things that has been interesting for us, we've been largely a B2C company, but the amount of B2B conversations that have started to come up have been very interesting for us over this time. A question for both of you, just given this environment, where are you taking on more or less risk? Well, I think for us, the thing that is universal that like we would be doing, whether it was a good time or bad time, I just think that brands are made and built during hard times. And so the thing that we always just front and center want to make sure is that we are there for our members who are going through another challenging time. It feels every few months, the new challenge du jour is coming your way. And so for us, we are always going to be investing deeply and heavily in the experience to make sure that we can meet our members where they are, that they have that support through those hard times. The irony is that because it is a hard time, you often need something like chief more. And so we just a few weeks ago announced that we're officially going over to the UK. So we're expanding internationally, which would be counterintuitive to people people in a moment like this. But it's actually when people need things like this the most. And we often resonate as a service that people are looking for. How about you, Enrique? I think we're absolutely taking less risk and increasing focus in terms of like prioritization. So I would say that before in 2021, you would have these projects that were Horizon 1, Horizon 2, Horizon 3, which is what's going to pay back in six months, what's going to pay back in 18 months. That's like the general framework. And we had a lot of projects that were, I would consider like 
early stage bets and seeds that we're planting that may or may not become anything in the future. But if you do enough of them, like one might become the AWS or something like that. I would say that we're putting that on pause for now. We're basically saying we're going to absolutely focus on the only most important things we need to deliver for our customers. And there are some markets that maybe we're not going to compete, but that are not our core. And the, the core markets, we're going to double down on making sure we're serving our core customers really, really well. So I would say that that's probably something we're taking less risk on. I would say that's something we're taking more risk on is we're trying to be very opportunistic. So we raised over a billion dollars last year and, you know, we still have a lot of cash on balance sheet. And I think there are in this kind of times, there's a lot of opportunities that are created. Obviously, M&A is the obvious one that everyone thinks about. But I think there's a lot of other things around marketing, around hires, around other kinds of investments that you can make during these times that would be hyper competitive or not available during the good times. And I think we're trying to be opportunistic and take some risk there. Fascinating. I want to end the conversation around just advice. So let's spend some time there. So the companies that are Builders and Innovators Summit are all entrepreneurs. And you've both had impressive careers in building companies before launching your businesses. What did you learn from those experiences that helped you as founders and CEOs? And that's the first question. The second question is, do you have any advice for other entrepreneurs starting their own businesses right now? Yeah, I joke all the time that I've been a senior executive at a lot of other startups and you thought you were in it with the founders and then you go and become a founder yourself and you're like, oh, this is different when you were <laughs> in that seat. So I was like sending emails to all my past founders being like, oh, I'm so sorry that I was such a pain in the butt <laughs> at the time. This is different. But there's still a lot to be learned from that. And I think one of the biggest things that I have learned, you know, I've worked with some amazing founders and the people that got the best out of me were the people who gave me extreme trust and really put big challenges in front of me that frankly, I didn't deserve the opportunity to go and have those challenges. There was nothing in my background at the time that said like I was going to be able to go and really deliver on the thing that they were asking me to do, but I did. And I think that is something that is a great learning for me as I've tried to build this team and build a culture of like how important trust is in the culture that you are building. And especially as you go into some of these harder macroeconomic times that you want to make sure that you have a team that's in that bunker with you, but that you can really trust to go and spearhead some really big risky initiatives. I think my learning over the years is when you start scaling as a founder CEO, a lot of process gets built on a company. You start having this feeling that everything is slow, right? Whatever it took one person now takes 10. Whatever mm. took one week now takes a month, right? And you start feeling that the company starts becoming really slow. And when you talk to your team, everyone just says, oh, this is what it is. When a company grows, this is what happens. And I would say that I took a particular project for myself to start analyzing if that's actually true. And I think especially in this environment of doing more of less, I would advise founders to question that assumption. Do we really need to be really slow? And I think a way that companies become really slow is that they start optimizing for the 1%. So I'll give an example, right? There is some stories on Reddit about people who have three jobs at the same time with remote work. Therefore, because of the 1% of people who have three jobs, now we're going to monitor everyone's computer or we're going to not do remote work or we're not going to do this. And then, okay, now we have all this bureaucracy because of the 1% or expenses, which is the area we play in as another example. When Brex early on, everyone trusts everyone. Then one engineer went and bought $3,000 worth of Wagyu beef <laughs> in a restaurant. And now 
we were super upset. We didn't want our culture to be like this. So then our CFO now implemented this process, right? That everyone needs to go to multiple approvals and memos and receipts and everything. And again, because of the 1% of people, 99% now have to go through this process. Hiring committees is the other one, right? Like you do one bad hire, now everyone needs to go through a hiring committee. So I would say that's probably the most common theme that I found when scaling companies is people start building process for the 1%, not for the 99. And I think my recommendation, especially in this time of doing more of less, is go back and make sure you're building your processes for the 99%. Well, let's end with what success looks like 5, 10 plus years from now for each of your companies. Carolyn, maybe you start. I think that there's the macro goal that we have as chief of wanting to have equal representation in leadership and being able to be even just a small part of that broader movement, I think would be an amazing success story. I think for us personally, we truly want to build globally the biggest, most powerful network of women. Yeah, I think for Brex, I have a very big passion for distributed companies because I think the second order effects of companies hiring in locations like Brazil or India or even Utah that haven't received much investment is that it develops a lot of the local communities, especially as they go. And I think that I would love to build uh, financial services and software that empower leaders to make companies more distributed and still do really well. So I would love that the Brex customers are the fastest moving, the most successful ones everywhere in the world. Enrique and Carolyn, thank you both so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic and inspiring discussion. So thank you both. And we will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, which was recorded at the Builders and Innovators Summit in Sonoma County, California on Thursday, October 13th. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit gs.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.